Welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, often avoided, or even ignored. Prostate cancer is now the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men in the UK. And with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is Simon Lord, personal trainer and cancer rehab specialist, who is also a prostate cancer survivor, having had successful robotic surgery in 2010. He joins on focus to discuss the changes and developments he's observed in diagnostics and treatments for men with prostate cancer and how this impacts the experience of men he works with. Simon, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today on On Focus. It's great to be with you, Claire. Super. Well, one of the things that sort of brought me to want to chat with you is, is aside from all the great work you do with men, both pre and post um, prostate cancer treatment, is that, you know, you've seen some incredible changes. You've indeed experienced these changes over the last 11 years. And I'm really interested in hearing how you've seen these changes work for the benefit, or maybe you've seen some challenges that, that need to be addressed. So during this period, what would you say is the, is the good news and what is the bad news in terms of progress? I think the good news for many, but not yet all men, is that the pathway for prostate cancer diagnosis has definitely been speeded up. And within that pathway, there is more use of better technology than certainly was the case when I was diagnosed. So if you go back 11 years, every man was diagnosed with prostate cancer following a transurectal biopsy. So a device put up the rectum, needle shot out through the rectal passage into the, into the prostate. Now, some men still have that biopsy process, but it's a shrinking number. Mm -hmm. And the majority of men are now diagnosed following a biopsy taken directly through the perineum with the aid in many cases of an MRI scan. Mm -hmm. So I think what we should be seeing is fewer men needing biopsies, but more biopsies giving greater, more accurate information to the surgeon or to the oncologist to allow them to uh, really prescribe the right treatment. Okay. And, and does that manifest in, in the men you work with, that they feel confident that they've been diagnosed accurately um, and effectively and, and that the treatment is appropriate? I think so. And I, I, there is still work to be done to ensure that um, technique is available to all men. But mm -hmm. there's been a significant change. Very few transperineal biopsies are being done when I was diagnosed. We're just coming in. And now we're starting to see some real evidence that they work and that MRI-guided uh, biopsies work. And so I think you know, within the next five years, we'll probably see the majority of men being diagnosed through that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you say that it's becoming more prevalent, but yet we also talked in, in previous conversations about how there's still variability across the NHS and this can impact men going through diagnostics and treatment. I mean, can you give some examples of this? Well, that's where, exactly that. That, that, yeah. that is my exact point, is that, that, is that this is not yet universally available. MRI scanning capacity is obviously variable across the NHS. Uh, best practice we should allow this to happen, but best practice isn't yet universal practice. Mm -hmm. um, and until it is, there will be variability um, mm -hmm. without a doubt. Um, there are some other more niggling issues, I think, around best practice. We still see one or two, more than one or two, sadly, a significant number of men being put off having a PSA test by at the primary care level, by GPs, uh, because those GPs don't think it's relevant. Mm -hmm. um, don't think that the PSA test gives accurate information. Um, and clearly some men will therefore receive a late diagnosis of prostate cancer and have their treatment options limited and their life limited as a result. 
I mean, you know, in another area of variability, of course, is access to counseling. Do you see this having improved in, in the time since, you know, your treatment, um, both in terms of quality and quantity, for example? Well, access to counseling, I think, is very poor indeed. I would say even now it's very poor. Um, and I would think very few men uh, and their partners are properly counseled in terms of treatment options. They might be given them. But whether they're cancelled over them is another matter because cancelling is not just a question of, well, here's a piece of paper with the information on it. What do you want to choose? Tick this box, please. Fully to cancel someone about that is not something that you can do in a, a 15 minute session or even one or even a couple of 15 minute sessions. So I don't think that we are anywhere close to seeing the level of availability and the quality of cancelling that I would want to see for men in that respect. Mm, indeed. I mean, do you think that the, the need for counselling is greater now than, than when you were going through your, your treatment? Well, not really. I mean, I guess the only issue is that we're probably seeing an increasing number of men being diagnosed younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that respect, do they deserve more counselling? Well, on one level, yes, but overall, not really, because it's still the same impact, whether you're 43, 53, 63 or 73. So I don't really hold with the idea that just because they're younger, they should get cancelled, because that is rather writing off the, the older man who, for all we know, might be just as um, healthy and vigorous as someone 25 years is younger. Yeah, indeed. I mean, we see this all, all the time. And I guess we're referring here to counselling around side effects and, you know, particularly around sexual Particularly, but, I think, mm. but, but not only, but I mean, obviously, you know, the side effects are, are massive in some cases, but I, I don't see that, that the age of the patient should have a bearing on that. I agree, entirely agree. Well, I guess my question really about the side effects was given that there are more options in theory available, that there's more information um, and more potential impact around side effects. So potentially the need for for more counselling. I mean, we hear this a lot from patients that they haven't felt counselled properly. It's an eternal problem. And I think um, we're certainly in a better place than we were you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago. You know, maybe the NHS hasn't really caught up with the technology because I think the NHS is still sort of based on the idea that all this could, has to be done you know, one-to-one in a hospital setting. And the reality is that actually the vast majority of this could now be done maybe still one-to-one, but certainly remotely doesn't need to be done at a hospital level. There's no reason why this couldn't be done at a, at a regional or national level with men having access to the type of counselling they want to have, not the one-size-fits-all that the NHS wants to put at them, you know, so that there would be an opportunity to have counselling done you know, still very effectively but remotely rather than someone having to travel to a hospital to, to have that take place. Mm-hmm. And, and in a previous conversation we had, you, you talked about how funding and awareness for prostate cancer is is actually very small compared, for example, to that for breast cancer. And I'm wondering why you think that is and, and why you think it's important. It's always difficult, you know, in a, in a situation like mine, to not to be seen to be complaining about another tumour's funding. I don't want to complain about and say, well, breast cancer gets 10 times the amount of prostate cancer does. That's unfair because that is, is a, it's a fairly negative statement, albeit true. You've got to remember that there's a lot, breast cancer's got a lot of history. Breast cancer obviously has got a lot of, high-profile patients and advocates, you know, going back uh, over years. Breast cancer's got a remarkable profile, really, because if you believe the publicity, you would believe that most women with are diagnosed with breast cancer, you know, in their 
in their 30s or 40s, you know, relatively speaking, in their prime. The truth mm-hmm. of the matter, of course, is that it's just like all cancers, it's actually a disease of getting older. And mm-hmm. most ladies diagnosed, most people diagnosed with breast cancer are over 50, in the same way that most men diagnosed with prostate cancer are over 65. But the breast cancer uh, campaigners have been very effective at what I would call, um, what you would understand, as um, uh, linking um, breast cancer to apple pie and motherhood, you know, and, and making it, or the support of it, Obviously, not the disease itself, but making it you know, making it glamorous to support breast cancer. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I can see I can see where you're coming from on that, and and you're quite right. We don't really hear about men in their forties, oh, um, and we don't hear about um, men in their late forties and fifties uh, being diagnosed with prostate cancer. I mean, a very very recently, a smaller number of you know what the media would call celebrities have come out with the fact that they're being they're being treated for it. Actually, I have a problem with that too, but I'll tell you about that in a second. Are you referring um, to like Stephen Fry and, and Bill Turnbull? Is that kind of what uh, you're thinking of? Well, 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 Stephen Fry is an interesting example. But uh, Rod Stewart as well, actually, I think. But the flip side of their being open about it is that it does bring more awareness to the topic. Bill Turnbull particularly and Stephen Fry also, obviously both very well known mm-hmm. in, the, in the entertainment and, and uh, broadcasting sector. And so they've got a, you know, a, a big audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and if they've been able to get more men in to be checked for the possibility of prostate cancer, then that's clearly a good thing. The flip side of it, however, is that what it's actually also shown is a there's been a reduction in my 10, 11 years of advocacy of the press wanting to talk to Joe Average about prostate cancer because we've now got celebrities very happy to talk about it. What, of course, you don't hear about the celebrities is that clearly they've already got a significant income in some cases, they've got a book or a show to sell, and almost without exception, they're being treated privately. And so their prostate cancer isn't actually the same as my prostate cancer. Mm. My prostate cancer was diagnosed on the NHS. My prostate cancer prevented me from working. My prostate cancer didn't give me a book or a stage to stand on to talk about it. My family were worried about my, my income and my future health. Uh, and the impact on the family as a result of that, because I'm the only earner in my family. Whereas in the cases of the celebrity prostate cancer survivors, none of that is an issue. Yeah, indeed. Um, and so, you know, I think there's been a bit of a skew away from the, the man in the street talking about his prostate cancer towards the celebrities, which ultimately I think is disappointing because it makes it sound as though actually prostate cancer probably isn't too bad because you can throw money at the problem. Now, obviously, in the case of Bill Turnbull, we know actually his prostate cancer is advanced and he, in no amount of money, will save his life. But uh, he still has uh, significant advantages over, you know, a man with a manual job and uh, no big savings behind him. No, indeed. So drawing this to a close, I guess I would I'd be really interested in your views on what you would say to newly diagnosed men and men going through treatment, who I guess you engage with pretty regularly in both your advocacy and your rehab. What are your top three pieces of advice? My first and most important piece of advice is is read around the subject. Mm -hmm. Make sure the treatment you're having is the treatment that you're happiest to have. And if that means having a second or even a third opinion on your situation and the treatments available and the likely outcomes, then do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I took a second opinion and it, it undoubtedly changed a great deal of things for me. Mm-hmm. I, I guess the second thing is find other men in your situation to talk to. They will be your greatest supporters and will comfort you 
in ways you didn't believe possible, despite the fact that they might have been strangers, you know, 10 minutes or, or more ago, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. There is a huge and very positive energy out there for men going through what you're going through. Find that energy and draw from it because it will carry you through. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. And I know I did that. Uh, and that's a large part of why I do what I do. Because I want to feed back some of what I was given and I will never finish mm-hmm. because you're, you've always had more than you can give. Okay. And the third piece of advice, which I rather would say, wouldn't I, is if you're not already fit, get fit. And if you don't know how to get fit, find someone to help you get fit. Because the fitter you are, as you go through both diagnosis, treatment and recovery, the better your future life will be. Simon, I want to thank you very much for speaking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, You're quite an inspiration for a lot of men and their families. Um, And I want to thank you once again for, for coming today. Claire, it's been my pleasure. I look forward to catching up with you in due course. Further information on standards of care in diagnostic procedures and treatment for prostate cancer is available on our website, along with the transcript of this interview and additional interviews and stories about living with prostate cancer. Please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Focal Therapy Clinic. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time. <laughs>